a real entrepreneur helping others succeed. This is your host, Rivers Corbett, founder of the Rockstar Mastermind on the Startup Canada podcast. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, a show serving Canada's entrepreneurship community. On this show, we connect you with the most innovative and entrepreneurial movers, shakers, and change makers across Canada. With day-in-the-life stories and in-their-shoes experiences, we dive into the true grit of running startup and scale-up companies and those driving the entrepreneurial movement. The Startup Canada podcast show is a production of Startup Canada, the national rallying community for Canada's 2.3 million entrepreneurs. If you are a regular show listener, welcome back. If you're new to the program, hey, don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes and Google Play Music. And visit startupcan.ca to connect with both your local startup community and to join Startup Canada to access training, resources, and a peer network to grow your success. I am your host, Rivers Corbett. If you're looking to access the best-in-class mastermind group, then I invite you to join my own Rockstar Mastermind. We teach people how to learn and build a successful company from scratch. Visit therockstarmastermind.com for more information. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I love going from the East Coast to the West Coast because there's epicness happening in Vancouver today. And uh, so, so, so happy to introduce today's special guest, Katrina Carol Foster. Katrina is the founder and CEO of Collectively Business Strategies, which is a boutique agency specializing in brand and positioning strategies for tech startups and growth phase companies. She has worked with the founding team of more than 30 companies to position them for growth. Katrina also champions small business and newly minted entrepreneurs as a mentor, advisor, and speaker for organizations like Futurepreneur, the Forum for Women Entrepreneurs, and the Next Big Thing. In 2007, she co-founded, yes, that's with an exclamation point, Vancouver Young Executives of Success, which is a pioneering organization that offers mentorship and networking to young professional women. Recently, Katrina helped launch the Raise Collective with four other founders to help change the ratio of women in early stage investing. On today's show, Katrina is going to talk about her involvement with the startup community and how it's helped shape her into an expert strategist in the marketing field. Katrina, after all the technical problems we have, finally, we're talking. Welcome to the show. (laughs) Thanks, Rivers. Yeah, so take us, um, our, our audience is expecting us to kind of chat about the end of the show here so that they'll, they can kind of lean in and, uh, and kind, of, kind of understand the journey they're going to go on. What are you hoping our listeners are going to take away from today's chat? Well, I think two main things, Rivers. One is uh, to really get people excited about the opportunities that entrepreneurship has to offer, as well as maybe some of its um, pitfalls, but right. also to talk a little bit about the role that uh, supporting and championing diversity in business and technology has for the economy. Love it. Love it. Well, let's kind of dive in. You're really, really passionate on making sure women have equal business opportunities. Why do you think uh, women's involvement in business is so important? Sure. Well, listen, Canada's entrepreneurial landscape, our country's economy more broadly, uh, is stronger when it reflects the full diversity of our population. Um, I'm sure some of your other guests have touched on this. You know, there's a fairly recent um, McKinsey report, and it stated that Canada could add 
I think it was upwards of $150 billion in GDP over the next decade or so by really focusing on or continuing to focus on advancing women's equality. And I think there's a lot of great things happening in our country right now. And, mm-hmm. and Startup Canada has certainly been one of the champions of this. Um, but, you know, there's still a lot of room for improvement, uh, certainly at the senior management level to see more diversity. You know, right now, once you get into senior management, the numbers of women dropped under 25%. And what I'm really interested in, and, and in the technology sector where I spend um, my working life, women are still, you know, terribly underrepresented. Um, there was a, a global report out of the global startup uh, ecosystem, I think, that quoted a figure of around 10 or 15% only of startups are still owned by women. Wow. And yeah, you know, but the great thing is that this is something that um, we're seeing both politically and from the private sector is starting to change. Canadian leaders, organizations like Startup Canada, um, and private businesses are all really, I think, trying to push um, push the dial, change the dial. And we want to see more women in technology because, frankly, this is where some of the most innovative and high potential um, areas of business and businesses of the future are really being created. You know, I, um, I yeah. sorry, I, I mean, we're going to continue on that chat, but I, I really have to mention, I am one of those people, when I started to interview some really epic women in, on the podcast, and, and now including yourself, you know, I'm, I was always an entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs and entrepreneur. Why do we have to separate it out? But I, I've got to tell you what's really cool about how I have evolved in understanding the issue and then appreciating the issue is now I understand why they're needs to be a specific focus on women entrepreneurs and and helping them to one tell the story and two helping them to uh, to go from 15 percent to 50 percent and so you know I, i'm i'm glad to hear that there's movement but i concur with you there's uh, there's more dialogue that needs to happen to to really make it equal yeah and i think part of that dialogue i mean it, it really is dialogue it's about information because um it's not that women don't have the education or the training uh-huh. or the desire to start a technology company. Um, there are plenty of qualified women out there. I think they're earning upwards of 40% of the degrees in science and engineering. Uh. Um, they represent 30% of the total software industry workforce, but they're less likely to have um, role models and information about how to become entrepreneurs, how to raise venture capital. Right. So, you know, diversity matters. It unlocks innovation, different views, different experiences, different ideas. They're all critical, I think, to driving the kind of disruptive, creative, critical thinking that we need in this country to continually move us forward. So, you know, it's not that it's a nice to have. It really is an economic imperative. Oh, it's a must. Um, and, Absolutely. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned uh, in the introduction that we'd recently um, founded uh, a nascent organization here in Vancouver called right. the Raise Collective. Yeah, I want and to I talk wanted about to touch that. on that. Perfect. Yeah, well, you know, Diversity, you know, clearly important in entrepreneurship. Um, we want to see it uh, move also into capital and investment. You know, there are a lot of attributes and experiences that women can bring to the table that help to sort of change the conversation, provide different decision-making frameworks um, in investing. And right now, uh, women uh, make up less than 4% of investment dollars, of venture investment mm. dollars. And mm. so, you know, we looked at that and said, look, there's a gap in this and the gender ratio of early stage capital. And that impacts uh, where the dollars are going and who is being invested in. And so um, my co-founders and I thought, well, what could we do to try and uh, change the uh, ratio on in early stage investing? And so we uh, recently founded a group called the Raise Collective, which is really just meant to, I guess, play a role in, in um, changing the face of early stage investing and in doing so, supporting 
more women entrepreneurs. Love it. And, and, and the stats do show that uh, if you have a, a woman entrepreneur uh, and a male entrepreneur both starting at the same time, the odds are that the woman entrepreneur is going to have the success against the uh, against the guy. And so it really kind of shocks me that with that 4% that people aren't saying, oh, my gosh, you know, the odds are that the woman entrepreneur is going to be the one that's successful versus the, the man entrepreneur. So I think we invest in what we know, Rivers. You know, yeah. People are comfortable investing investing where they're um, in something that feels good to them, that they recognize, right. that looks a little bit like them, that walks like them. Right. I mean, I just anecdotally had an experience, which is now, oh, wow, I think it's almost 10 years ago. Um, I had a, a small business. We mm-hmm. raised a small seed round here in Vancouver. And then um, uh, about a year later, decided, okay, it was time to raise capital in the Valley. And uh, um it was a really interesting experience for myself and my business partner. We, we had an e-commerce business that was uh, selling um, uh, products that were geared only to women, um, uh-huh. addressing uh, a market that was only for women and uh, trying to solve a problem that only women faced. And the conversations that we had were, were quite interesting. And, and generally, I would say that, um, well, nine out of the ten uh, investors that we spoke to were, were male, and there wasn't really an understanding of the, pro- the mm. problem in the marketplace. However, that being said, what's very interesting and encouraging is the same business model uh, today. Uh, there are several women doing something very similar right now on the East Coast, uh, one here in Vancouver. They're actually just uh, graduating from 500 startups in the Valley. Their conversations are changing, and I believe they're changing because um, they're approaching venture cap firms that now have uh, female VCs. Um, uh-huh. These VCs are now sitting on their boards and they see a different problem and they recognize the solution. So having those women putting in their dollars, sitting on those boards of directors really makes a fundamental difference to who is getting invested in. Um, and so, you know, one of the things that the Race Collective is doing is really just providing a space where we can um, uh tell, I would say, inexperienced investors, curious investors, investors that want to know more about early stage uh, investing, that this is actually now something that is um, easier to do. You, you, you know, you don't need to be an accredited investor necessarily to dip your toe into it because we've got tools now like, you know, front funder. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a great way to um, show your support of a female-led venture that you're interested in. What uh, what values or views do uh, do women have that may be different than men? Uh, this is again part of the dialogue about the I don't know what I don't know. Um, so can you kind of let's 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 have that that uh, conversation so that our audience across the case, the country can can get a get a better insight in, on what you're talking about. Sure. I mean, it's hard for me to speak to to values, but maybe I can share um, uh, my perspective, which was which would be to say. Um, a female entrepreneur uh, sits in the boardroom with a group of uh, investors. She tends to be more conservative in the um, financial outlook. There may not be the uh, proverbial hockey stick on her Uh pitch deck. Uh She's going to be um, probably more conservative in the um, revenue expectations that she is pitching. And she may uh, either underestimate or be very, um, again, conservative on her estimation of the market size. Right. If you had her male counterpart, perhaps because of his um, conditioning, his uh, confidence levels, just uh, different role models that he will have approached, 
he's going to be more aggressive in the market size that he's projecting, in the revenue that he's estimating. And if he's sitting in front of um, a group of male investors that are expecting that, that may resonate more. So he's going to be seen as confident mm-hmm. and um, and outgoing and a go-getter. And she's going to be seen as perhaps um, too conservative, uh, not enough entrepreneurial drive. And so she'll get weeded out. And I think if you're sitting in front of um, – a more balanced group of investors from a gender perspective, they might recognize that uh, slightly more conservative, cautious approach. And I don't think it's that um, female entrepreneurs are less, um, they're not risk takers. They are. I think they're risk astute. I think they dip their toes Mm. in slowly and then they gain momentum. And so um, as a woman, I recognize that. I I probably would do the same thing. I Mm -hmm. think if you're a man, uh, you're less likely to do so. This was actually borne out, I think, in a study out of Finland fairly recently that, you know, female and male entrepreneurs are viewed very differently. And um, if you only have a group of male investors at the table, uh, they're going to support like because like recognizes itself. Sure. Sure. So, you know, that's very interesting you say that. I was a mentor uh, as part of an accelerator program here in the East Coast, and uh, this 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 um, one of my people I was mentoring, she uh, had a wonderful business idea, and then she get, was show, showing us in a presentation her projections, and I was like, oh, my God, you know, that's just crazy. They're so low. <laughs> and and, and mm-hmm. I wanted her to be more aggressive. So I'm, I'm a testament to exactly what you're saying. And she, on the mm-hmm. other hand, didn't want to progress, progress, project them very high because she wanted to achieve them and make them, uh, make them comfortable for her moving forward. And she still was launching a business. It still had growth associated with it so uh, i love that point that you're making so how do we how do we move from a nine out of ten ratio of men on boards venture boards or whatever to uh, to to uh, an equal representation listen you know there are people with far more experience than i that are going to give you uh probably some very um interesting answers as relates to policy opportunities but i think really right now it's about conversation Mm. education information and community Um, One of the things that's really exciting right now is uh, because of the changing landscape of fintech, because of um, the ease with which we can invest now, and because, frankly, information is democratized when it comes to all these amazing, um, you know, startups out there, it's now much more feasible for groups like female funders, for the Raise Collective, and for others to share with their communities, you know, how do you vet a company? How do you um, understand if it's an interesting financial opportunity? What's the market potential? Um, if you're an accredited investor, you're more likely now to find groups of women that you may want to invest with to mm-hmm. form a bit of a collective. Mm. If you don't, if you're not an accredited investor, but you're, um, you know, you, you, you've made your, uh, your, what I would call sort of 90% investments in, in the safe the safe things, but yes. you've got that 10% put aside and you want to start to dip your toe and you want to mm. try it. Well, there are funding tools available to you. And I think really it's just getting comfortable with them. Love Personally, it. that's what I've been doing is, you know, identifying um, businesses that I'm interested in, that I think I'm, I might get a small return in, um, led by people uh, that uh, I believe in. And I put in a small amount of money that I'm comfortable with and I'm just dipping my toe in, but it's giving me more confidence and I'm able to use the experience that I've had in this community to now actually um, become a very small part of some of these different companies. And that's exciting. And that to me is just about information, education and and, um, and community. Yeah, I'm sure you're aware of the CEO model. 
Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah no, she, she is doing great things and raising just an enormous amount of awareness right now, not only in Canada, but globally. I know. It's a, I've uh, had her on my, uh, in a, in a previous interview and it was just a wonderful journey and conversation. And, uh, it, it, you, you hit it back. It was just a small amount from everybody. Everybody's playing a role and it gives them that comfort level to, uh, to make that investment and play a role in the, in the growth of it. So very cool. So we've talked about men entrepreneurs. We've talked about uh, women entrepreneurs, but let's just talk about entrepreneurs in general. I know you're a, mm-hmm. uh, a champion of entrepreneurs. Why, why mm-hmm. do you think they are so important to the growth and development of, uh, of, of, uh, of Canada, Katrina? Oh my goodness. Um, well, I think because, uh, ideas, businesses, jobs, innovation, I mean, there's, there's no end to why I think entrepreneurs are important in this company, in this country. Uh, the, paradigm of our whole economy is shifting and i think mm. increasingly entrepreneurship is a viable business opportunity um uh, which is so exciting you it know is. when i graduated from university what feels like a million years ago there <laughs> were two tracks you know you either went down um you, you know management consulting uh, law if you're certainly if you're coming out of the arts yes. um you never started a tech company that was just not even an option i'm, I'm so right. fascinated by the confidence of this generation graduating from university and saying you know what i've got an idea and i'm going to pursue it and yeah. i think you know have a backup plan if it doesn't work but how fabulous that people are going out and actually pursuing um the creation of solutions to solve problems that they see in 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 um in the economy and yeah i think that uh i was struck I think it was a few weeks ago, I was reading an article, I think it was in the Globe and Mail, about the launch of the Canadian Entrepreneurship Initiative by Ruma Rose. And um, in the article, uh, Michelle Romano, one of our favorite dragons, uh, mm-hmm. from Dragon's Den, was um, quoted. And, and what she was speaking to was the fact that entrepreneurship in Canada is now seen as a viable career option. Yes. And um, she was saying, and I really agree, to th- agree with this, is that you know, a decade ago, no one said, oh, I'm aspiring, or two decades ago, I'm aspiring yeah. to be an entrepreneur. But right. now... It's cool. You know, little girls will come up to her and say, I want to be like you when I grow up. And so I think entrepreneurship is um, viable. uh, But I also think it's important to note that, you know, being an entrepreneur is not necessarily just about trying to build the next big thing or Mm -hmm. the next unicorn, um, Mm -hmm. to use some Silicon Valley language. It's also a way of thinking. Mm. You know, you can create a small but sustainable business. You don't need to create it into a big corporation. Small businesses are incredibly important. They drive our economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think really it's just almost a mindset. How are you impacting the world? How do you choose to create your life, contribute to your community? You know, pretty much anyone can be entrepreneurially minded. I love that comment. I, you know, one of the things that I don't like about the entrepreneurial landscape today is that we uh, we glorify the sell versus the journey versus the contribution Absolutely. to society versus the hey you've employed. 80 people for 20 years uh, and I don't think we celebrate enough of those entrepreneurs it's all about the big sell and uh, um, it, how would you suggest we get around with that dialogue also I mean this type of conversation this kind of conversation I mean honestly I think um, organizations like futurepreneur which right. um, you know provides low interest loans to young entrepreneurs looking to do new things in the world and and um, pairing them up with mentors. I think uh, organizations like Startup Canada, there are mm. honestly so many of them rivers. And I feel like the, I feel like the conversation has changed dramatically. Um, I look at some of the, you know, the younger women uh, that are in my life, the 
the risks that they're taking, the confidence that they have to try new things, and being okay to fail. I think that's one of the other interesting things is that failure is increasingly not a four-letter word. And I think that's important if you're going to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. It, I love the fact you talked about a little earlier, about two decades ago, it didn't even exist. You know, my, I, I was brought up in a, in a family of entrepreneurs, but it was never, when someone says, what did my grandfather do? You know, what did uh, my dad do? Well, I, and I always described, well, this is what they do for their job. And now to have mm-hmm. this dialogue, and they were entrepreneurs. They were, and they were entrepreneurs. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I mean, my grandfather back in the day was brokering deals between Cuba and Russia, between the two presidents of those uh, countries. And it's just, now I look at it, that's so freaking cool. How entrepreneurial before the internet mm-hmm. days. And we just, oh, that's what he does for a job. You know, he just, just transfers wood. And so I love that the mm-hmm. conversation's happening now. Very cool. Um, what's your biggest learning curve as a, as an entrepreneur? How to learn and how to bounce back from failure. Mm, so to dig a little deeper on those. What do you mean by how to learn? Well, um, let's see. So I mentioned earlier, you know, I, I started an e-commerce uh, startup a few years ago before Shopify uh, had a platform that was available to us. So at the time, there was a fairly large um, technology component involved. Yes. Um, I quit my senior management job, a paying gig, and uh, with my my close friend, we launched our startup and we raised a round of funding. We got some great media attention. We pitched some venture cap firms on Sandhill Road. It was a really amazing journey, highs and lows along the way. Ultimately, um, we had to make the decision to sell and close our company. And I would say that the act of starting any business, any business, technology or otherwise, asking for money, getting a bank loan, needing the support of friends and families and strangers, putting your idea out there, it's very exposing. It's taking a risk and it's sharing it with the world. Mm. And, um, you know, I think when when we ultimately realized that our business was not going to take the lifestyle world by storm, we had to um, figure out what that meant. And in our, in our case, it was making a very pragmatic decision to ultimately close our business and shutter it. And then we had the unenviable task of sharing that news with investors. And I found mm-hmm. that really hard to do. And I still do, mm-hmm. you know, we took um, the money and our, and the trust that our shareholders gave us very, very seriously. And of course, I think we felt we'd let people down. We felt like we'd failed. And that was a really um, difficult thing at the time. And I, I was looking for, you know, information. I was looking for community and articles, something that would show that, you know, other people were out there. And in the <laughs> last few years, there's been a spate of articles coming out about failing. And, you know, it doesn't always feel good. But I will say that uh, once we had you know, had those conversations once we'd made some decisions um, and and um, really looked at, well, why do we fail? What do we learn from it? Right. The interesting is that subsequent to that, eight years later, I've really, I personally have really tried to leverage that in the, um, in the work that I do with my clients. And I think it's, uh, you know, in addition to having certain expert skill sets, it's also um, provided me with a level of maybe empathy of their journeys um, uh, when I'm working with some of my mentees, uh, being able to provide them with a, just a different um, lens on what failure is and is not. Like, it is okay. And in yeah. fact, it's not about failing. It's just about being vulnerable. Right. Um, so, you know, I think that uh, 
I think that it's a hard lesson to learn, but you've got to be persistent, got to get back out there and you've got to figure out, well, why did I fail? What can I take from this? And what would I do differently and just move on then? I always find it very interesting, Katrina, is that, uh, you know, as, as, and I've gone through similar journeys of advising investors and uh, and so on and bouncing back. And you're right; it's it's not fun, but it interesting enough does get easier, of course, as you practice it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's amazing, isn't it? How in society, when we look at but people that invest in startups and how horrific it is that they lost their money. But we've got this amazing financial industry out there now called mutual funds, which the <laughs> stock market could drop tomorrow. No. Nobody calls up their mutual fund manager and he, he or she sure the heck doesn't call us and say, hey, yeah. what's going on? And and it's just, okay, I lost money. I got to figure it out. But for some reason, when you invest in a startup, it's just horrific. How dare you lose my money? <laughs> well, you've got that. You, you can look you can look them in the eye. I think there's that level of intimacy versus you know, <laughs> the bank statement online. So, yeah. you know, it's... Uh, it's a, it's a, you know, and I, and I wonder if that is also why sometimes women may self-select out of um, that option to raise money is, it, you know, uh, I, at the time that we were raising money, um, we became friends with another group out of New York uh, who were raising the same amount. And um, when they lost, uh, when, when they had to close their business or, or the startup didn't actually pan out, um, their attitude was so different from ours. It was like, well, the investor knew what he was getting into, mm-hmm. you know, that's investment. Oh, well, move on. And they did. And in fact, one of quite successful. And I thought, you know, that's just so interesting. Whereas the two of us were just, mm-hmm. uh, we took it really hard. We mm. really, really felt that personal connection to the investor. So, yeah. um, yeah. But, 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 you know, I think when you, when you take away the emotion associated with it, they are right. The investor knew what they were getting into. And if the regular Absolutely. dialogue was happening along the way, they weren't hiding things along the way, then, you know, that's just the, the opposite. Because the investor sure the heck would have taken the high, high road on it. Oh, fantastic. I got all this money versus uh, the loss. So uh, I, I think there's an element of that. But, of course, as Canadians, Absolutely. I think there is an element of emotion. And I know my most recent one, I, it was it was like I was carrying the you know, that had the or the scarlet letter over my uh, on my forehead for about three uh, three months, and uh, when actually in reality, no one really cared. When you get no right one down really cares. But, you know, I think the more we talk about failure, but the lessons of failure, um, the better. And I love that the business community is talking so much about uh-huh. it because I think um, it. Otherwise, failure will prevent people from starting their right. next business, from right. taking that next you know risk. Uh, and we don't want that. We want people leaning into these ideas and, and, and problem solving and coming up with new ways to do things. So, you know, fail, learn from it, um, maybe lick your wounds and, you know, for 90 days and then move on. <laughs> mm, move on. Yeah, that's uh, uh, Jennifer Aniston. I remember hearing her once. She says, I allow myself a pity party for 24 hours, then I get on with my life. I thought that was pretty yeah. cool advice. Not bad. Back to advice. Uh, when a client comes to you for advice on how to scale up their business, what is the most mm-hmm. important piece of information you share with them? Well, I'm going to give you a two-part answer. I think it okay. really depends on where they are in their business's life cycle. So if they're a startup and they're before product market fit, so you know your customers, you still don't know who your customer is, your ideal customer, people are still testing your product for the first time, I would say then you need to focus obsessively on getting to product market fit. Because if you right. don't, um, it's not going to be necessarily that you had a poor product or you didn't have the money or the channel was wrong. It's because you just never found product market fit. And right. 
once you have product market fit, it is remarkable the things that you can do wrong along the way. It could be the wrong channel. You could have, uh, you know, poor press relations. You could do any number of things to mess it up. But if yeah. you've got product market fit, right, people will stick with you. You're on the road to growth. So I'd say get obsessive about knowing who your customer is. Find that minimal viable market segment. Dig deep, learn, iterate, and then start to get referenceability, i.e., you know, Make sure that if you're going after, for instance, the education segment, that you've got those five customers that just rave about you. And even though the product might be a little bit glitchy, um, they see value and they can't live without it. And I'll say, you know, for anybody that's listening that uh, has a startup and maybe before product market fit, Sean Ellis, um, who writes the startup marketing blog, created a really simple survey question that I've actually um, had many of my early stage companies um, implement. And it actually helps to almost quantify whether or not you've reached product market fit because cool. that's a tough thing to do. You know, if you're, if you've got that fit, there's any number of metrics that you're out there measuring for growth. But if you're before it, how do you know? So he said, ask this one question uh, of your customers, which is how would you feel if you could no longer use Acme product? And the goal is to get 40% of responses and users to say very disappointed. Uh, and if you have, you know, 10% that are very disappointed, it means most people can live without what you have. So you've still, you're still not a product market fit and you need to figure out how to better position your product. So, um, you know, how would you feel if you can no longer use this product? Now, more interestingly, you know, a lot of the companies that are out there are in growth phase. They're trying to figure out how to scale. And I think there's, you know, three main, um, three main things I get them to focus on. One, uh, do you know your why? Uh, My experience is almost every company out there is selling the what and they're selling the how. They're just dying to share their features, um, you know, where the technology is going to take people in the future. And they forget about what's actually driving choice today. Why is a customer going to buy my product today against any other options out there? So I always ask um, my founders to take a step back and really think about why. How is your product actually going to change the world of your customers? What is the purpose of your business? And um, for listeners, you know, I highly recommend that if they haven't already, they take a read or listen to Simon Sinek's TED Talk, Start With Why. Yeah, it's a great talk. You know, it's a great talk. Not many companies can clearly articulate why they're doing what they do, you know, their purpose. So start with why. Um, nail your basics. That's the second thing that we, uh, that second piece of advice for a company that's in growth phase. So if you reach that product market fit, then start identifying those marketing channels with the biggest ROI, start testing them so that you can um, scale up after testing with a small budget. And lastly, and this is the big one, and I'm sure Rivers, that you see a lot of this, uh, it's focus. Um, right uh, Mark, Brian Halligan from uh, HubSpot, CEO of HubSpot, um, coined a phrase which I love, uh, and it's called the optionality tax. And, and Sorry, what you call it? Stages, the ob- object... The- no, the optionality. Tax. Optionality. Okay, cool. Yeah. So in the early stages of business, um, founders want to keep their options open. Sure. But as business starts to scale a bit, those options are going to get increasingly and increasingly expensive over time. Every option has a cost, even if it's hidden. And so um, I always try to uh, dig in with my clients on focus, mm. focus on their target market, uh, even if it's one that they're going to only use for the next six months align all your resources to reaching those, uh, those target markets, and that includes product development, um, and really make sure that your product is sticky with those markets. 
if anyone is interested in a really interesting read on how to move from startup to scale up, I highly recommend looking up Brian Halligan's blog post. Uh, I think it's called um, A Playbook on how to move from startup to scale up, but it uh, really talks about the optionality tax. It's a great read. Sorry, I'm, I'm writing notes. Can you say that one again, Brian? Brian Halligan from HubSpot has yeah. written a blog post and it's called A Playbook on How to Move from Startup to Scale Up. Perfect. And um, out here in Vancouver, I, I, uh, I work with um, Wavefront to deliver one of their uh, programs to uh, growth phase companies and that's basically required reading for them is understand what that optionality tax is where is it in your business so katrina what would what would be some of the tricks that you can provide to our our listener uh for staying focused because i agree with you it's we get we have squirrel mentality how do you give us the one or two things that you say this is what you need to do to practice to stay focused because it is so important it is so important. I think, first of all, it's going to be, um, especially for smaller companies, alignment, alignment between the founding team. So have you done any measure of planning where you all agree that you are going to go after this one particular minimal viable market segment? And have you all agreed on what the resources are that you're going to um, uh, allocate towards that? And I actually wouldn't mind giving an example. Uh, uh, yeah, please do. A client recently, um, they've built out a, a powerful platform um, the technology is strong. The people that are using it right now uh, really seem to like it. The issue is that the platform is almost industry agnostic. There are any number of different options to them. Um, and in fact, they have a customer, I would say, from almost every different market segment you could imagine. Education, uh, retail, um, uh, technology. So where do they even start when they have one of each? And so mm. we... Um, we stepped back and we looked at the broader market landscape and as a group, we took, we invested six hours, which, you know, was in a small company, even though uh, you'd think everyone in the same office would be aligned. We're all working in silos. You've got, you know, the, the, uh. the developers are building out uh, new feature sets and deploying them quickly. Uh, you've got business development responding to all sorts of different opportunities and leads. And what's happening is that um, it, it's busy work, but it's not focused work. And the problem with that is that new companies can bleed out their resources very, very quickly. And so what we did was take a step back and say, look, is there one uh, industry segment right now that we could get um, referenceability in, i.e., do we have a customer right now, marquee customer, that we can leverage to create, um, almost build a campaign around and go deep into this market? And the answer was yes. And for us, it was in... Um, the education market. And so we as a group decided and got alignment from the CEO and the CTO down through the rest of the team that we would focus on education through the end of the year. And that means that every time we start a new project, every time we look to spend money, every time we get a lead in, we ask ourselves, is this going to help us own this particular market segment? Now, it doesn't mean that this market segment will be the silver bullet for the business. It means that right. if it is, we'll dig deeper and we'll pour the gas onto it. If it's not then we will move on to the adjacent one, but at least we know, whereas right now we cannot answer those questions. So um, I think, mm. you know, it's, it's uh, equal parts planning and execution, but it's always alignment amongst the senior management team. Yeah. And then, and then there's the, uh, the, the accountability to each other to, to stay focused for, versus relying on yourself. Absolutely. Um, 
on a uh, on a scale of one to ten, in your experience, uh, um, or, or let's do a percentage. Actually, what percentage of companies that come and work with you and others that you've experienced in your vast uh, life as an entrepreneur? What percentage? Uh, do not understand about product market viability? I would, oh gosh, percentage. I, I, I would guess. say over 80%. It's, it's, it's incredible, it's isn't it? It's incredibly high. I think um, it's very, having, having worked with a lot of companies, I think my answer would be to you that, you know, uh, founding teams are made up of ambitious, driven, incredibly intelligent people that, sometimes get very myopic they go down into their own silo mm-hmm. and they live mm-hmm. with the technology they understand it they can't understand how other people couldn't get excited about it <laughs> right they know where right. they know the future of the technology and they don't often stop to think well why does anybody actually need this right now and one of the mm-hmm. things um and it's amazing to me how many people don't talk to customers and get to understand customers right um right. i would say nine out of the 10 of the companies that I work with have not done stakeholder interviews in the past year, have not done surveys. They really have lost touch with why somebody is actually using their product. And um, oftentimes Uh they'll be quite surprised to see what's resonating either from a feature perspective or more importantly, um, a problem or a need that it's solving. And, uh, and so, yeah, it's an extraordinarily high number of people really have not, um, dug deep to understand that product market fit. They're just blithely creating new feature sets, um, maybe doing some marketing, trying different channels and wondering why it's not sticking. Yeah, I, 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 I think it's a real, and, and I'm so happy I took the the the, um, the, the jump to <laughs> to test my hypothesis that it was going to be a high percentage because I think it's a, such an important message to convey to entrepreneurs, startups, to on, on this podcast that indeed that's an issue they've got to deal with, and it could have very detrimental impact on their businesses if they don't. And it's in my experience, in, in uh, I. I Correct me if I'm wrong from your experience, but even large corporations, I might look at Tim Hortons as an example uh, about some of the ways they handle customer service. And a buddy of mine said, many a sales hides many a sins. Mm. And uh, it's so, so correct. You lose touch with that fit, that customer connection. I don't care how big or how small you are. It's always, always an issue. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Uh, it is always an issue. And I, I think what's interesting um, uh, is that uh, technology companies particularly are always selling into the future and they they commit the sin of forgetting why people are buying them today. So, you know, an example being um, somebody's created some kind of workforce, uh, workforce process technology that's going to make the lives of, you know, industry easier. And so they're trying to sell all sorts of efficiencies. They might even be trying to sell AI um, they're really excited about how we're going to revolutionize, um, you know, process improvement in 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 industries like the the oil patch. Well, the problem is a lot of people are using Excel spreadsheets and pen and paper. And if they had taken mm-hmm. a step back and understood how users are actually um, uh, dealing with problems in the field today, and they'll realize their competition. It's not technology. They don't need to sell the bells and whistles right now. They're just trying to move somebody off status quo. And 
you know, it's interesting. There was an article that came out yesterday about the lower adoption rates in Canada around financial technology, um, which I found surprising because Canada is sure, yeah. uh, amongst the leaders in technology adoption. But in fintech, we're actually still mm. pretty low. And I, I think mm. it's because, you know, um, a lot of the technology is almost too sophisticated. You know, you've got to inch people along. We're often making a move from status quo. We're not we're not coming at it from that same level of understanding as um, the founding you know, the founders of these companies that have really, um, they're immersed in technology at all times. And I think they sometimes just lose, lose sight of uh, the true pain points out in the marketplace and what they can do to address them. I could definitely see why you've been successful with Collectively, and uh, I want to make sure that our, uh, our our listener gets the opportunity to to uh, connect with you. Can you give us the uh, the website address or the best way to get in touch with you and or your company? Yeah, absolutely. You can uh, you can find us at Collectively with a K dot C A, and uh, I'm easily reachable at Katrina at Collectively dot C A, and uh, would welcome uh, any questions. Very cool. Well, thank you so much, Katrina, for uh, for your time today. It's been really insightful for me, uh, an epic conversation, and uh, keep doing what you're doing, and uh, keep staying in touch with Startup Canada also with, uh, with, uh, with all your talent, because I think many entrepreneurs, women and men, are, uh, can definitely benefit from, from what you're doing. So thank you so much. Thanks very much, Rivers. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us this week on the Startup Canada podcast, a show dedicated to unlocking the entrepreneurial potential of every entrepreneur with access to inspiring stories and tangible lessons to help you run your business. Want access to resources and support to grow your business? Visit startupcan.ca for the latest startup community news and upcoming events like our popular hashtag Startup Chats on Twitter every Wednesday and Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern. Till next week, I'm Rivers Corbett leaving you with a sneak peek of next week's episode. This is Dr. Sean Wise, the Startup Canada Fellow for Startup Communities and a Professor of Entrepreneurship at the Ted Rogers School of Management in Toronto. And you're listening to the Startup Canada Podcast with my boy Rivers. So let me ask you this question then. Do you, you know, I was at a, I was on a um, webinar yesterday about immigrant entrepreneurs and it was talking about the majority of immigrant entrepreneurs and here I am talking to a doctor, you know, entrepreneurship. So I, I, I'm throwing myself wide open there with regards to stats and data and so on, but they were referencing, okay, immigrant entrepreneurs, they, they become successful between 30 and 55. Uh, I'm experiencing here in the city of Fredericton, this amazing, um, uh, um, uh, enlightenment of entrepreneurship amongst those that are 20 to 30. Is there a, is there an age group that is really prominent these days starting the journey of being an entrepreneur in Canada? We've always had the entrepreneurs, but I'm talking about the next five years. Where are you seeing the, uh, the grouping, the segmentation, if I could call it, coming from? So where do I see the next great entrepreneurs coming from? Well, let me go back into your statement. So you talked about newcomers, people not born in the country that they're currently working in. You call them immigrants, but I'll call them newcomers. And the reason why newcomers have historically succeeded is a lot simpler than you think. The reason is, is because they don't have a choice. Uh, my grandparents came to this country with nothing, fleeing anti-Semitism in Europe, and they had a choice, stay and, you know, get ready for the Nazis or flee with nothing and start 
from the bottom. And when you have those options and you choose flee and start from the bottom, you see it as an opportunity to rebuild yourself. When you add to that the fact that some of the newcomers have credentials, they're doctors or lawyers in their home country, but aren't able to recertify here, they're again, they're forced to evolve. Now, whether that means they own a convenience store or they become uh, an amazing entrepreneur in a high tech startup or that they, 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 they do what has to be done. And, and I think that's also true why Israelis tend to have a higher success rate because the country doesn't have a lot of natural resources. There's nowhere to fall back to. It's all knowledge work or nothing. 